Do you know what I mean when I say a maritime goodbye? I think you're catching on. When you have someone over to your house, maybe for supper or to play some board games or something like that, there becomes a point in the evening when, you know, your your cup of tea has been empty for a while, and then you start to say, well, we should, you know, should be on our way. And so, you know, you go over to the kitchen and you, you know, maybe set your your teacup down, and then you chat in the kitchen for a while. And then, you, you know, you make your way over to the coat closet and, you know, the husband's taking his coat out and then the wife decides she's going to go use the restroom. And so you're sitting there chatting with the husband for a while. And then she comes back and then she's putting her coat on and then he's putting his hand on the doorknob. And then you have another conversation, <laughs> right? And eventually, you know, you're opening the door and they head out and then you realize, oh, I was going to ask them about so-and-so. And so they're standing out on the porch and you've got the door open here with your hand on the doorknob and then you're talking about so-and-so that you forgot to talk about when you were with them inside. And then eventually one thing leads to another and they end up taking off and, you know, the door's closed and it's an hour and a half after you had originally said, all right, I'm done with my tea. This is the maritime goodbye. As we're wrapping up our series in Colossians, Paul takes his time wrapping up the book. In fact, this, this letter that he writes to the church in Colossae, it's a town in western Turkey now, just outside Ephesus, and, and this is a letter that he was writing to churches there, as well as he wanted this letter circulated to other churches in the area. He's, he's been writing, and we have learned over the last several weeks about the things that he's been writing about, about the importance and supremacy of Jesus, about uh, the importance of clinging to Jesus for our hope instead of other teachings or philosophies or ideas as our anchor point that Jesus is the only one that can truly transform, that our way of life is shaped by Jesus, all of these things. And then he gets to this final part, which you think he's going to wrap up the letter, and then he has another thing that he's going to say, and another thing, and another person he wants to mention, and all of these. Now, this isn't unusual for Paul, and you know maybe this is just the way he was, or maybe just how people wrote letters back in the day, but he is notorious for at the end of his letters, he'll be about to kind of sign off and then he'll say, well, here's so-and-so who's going to be delivering the letter. Let me introduce you to them and so-and-so who's going to be with them. By the way, I plan on stopping by in a few months on my way through, so here are my travel plans. Also, here's uh, say hi to these people that I know who are in the church there, and then he'll have kind of like a final goodbye where he'll write in his own handwriting and be like, hey, these are the words that I'm writing instead of the person who was writing the letter on my behalf, and then like maybe some final sign-off words. He had a good long Goodbye. And so the section that we're going to be looking at today is Paul trying to sign off his letter, but he has some final really important things that he wants to say. Some final teachings that he's slipping in under the word count, and then he says goodbye. So we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to open it up there or follow along on the screen. And as he's wrapping up this letter, there are two 
very key things that he says before signing off that I've highlighted in yellow. We're going to focus on this first one for a bit. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, this teaching, this imperative, this is, this is not a suggestion, but this is Paul the Apostle saying, this is what you ought to do. Devote yourselves to prayer. To be committed to prayer as a key part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, marked by the Son of God who created all things, who redeems all things, to be made new in Him is to be someone whose life is marked by prayer. This isn't just a tag on to our lives. This is part of who we are. Those who are devoted to prayer. Now, here's the thing. If you're like me and your experience in church has been this kind of like guilt feeling of, I need to pray more. And so how am I going to add more prayer into my life? Like, should I wake up earlier and pray more? Like, do I need to have these extended, like Martin Luther prayed three hours a day and he said on days where he was super busy, he would pray four hours which like, I hear those things. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. And there's no way that I'm ever going to live up to that kind of expectation. But what Paul doesn't say is you need to have three hour long sections of prayer in your day. Let us pray. What he does say is to devote yourselves to prayer. That prayer would be just a regular and natural part of our life and conversation. Now, it's good to have set aside times of prayer in our lives, but I think what he's getting at is for us to grow into people where our first instinct is to talk to God. When something is going on, when we have some kind of feeling that comes up because of a situation, when we hear about things going on in our world, our natural instinct is God. God, I need you. God intervene. God be here. God understand what I'm feeling and help me. And so he has three things that he wants them to devote themselves, well, as they devote themselves to prayer to be doing. First of all, he says to be watchful. To be watchful. Which means to be aware of what is going on around you. That prayer would be your go-to response as you read the news and your news feed. And when you see something that is going on, that our first response isn't to, you know, to, to rant about it on social media or to, to make a post. Our first response is, okay, God, I need you to intervene. Help me understand what's going on. We, there, there's all kinds of criticism online about the whole like, term of thoughts and prayers, right? When some tragedy happens, People make fun of a Christian's response or, or those who you know, are maybe nominally of faith to say, oh, you know, thoughts and prayers for this situation. And there is a, a way in which it is kind of like a weak response when oh, I will just quickly tweet thoughts and prayers for this. But for us to actually pray in response to a situation is not weak. And it is not the quote-unquote least we can do. It is coming before the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who can intervene, the one whose word changes things, as we just sang, 
on behalf of a situation. It is not a weak thing to do to pray about the things that are going on. And I also believe that as we pray, God will lead us into action or lead us to support those who are able to act on behalf of these situations. That prayer in response to what we read in the news or what is going on in our lives, to be seeing those things and to see the right response being prayer is what we should do. To be watchful. When we see what is going on, when we read what is in the news, prayer is what we go to. Paul also says that in our devotion to prayer, to be thankful, to recognize that everything we have is from God. And prayerful thankfulness, I believe, is the antidote to our sense of entitlement. We are a people that live entitled where we are used to a certain level of comfort, a certain level of things going our way, and instead of seeing it as things that we are thankful to most of the time, they are things that we only acknowledge and then get upset about when they are not there. But instead to see everything as a gift from God that it is, and to live our lives in thankfulness to Him, to be regularly expressing thankfulness to God, even over the small things, I believe is one of the things that God uses to shape our hearts into thankful people. I, I, while I was in Kenya, we were talking with someone else on our team who had just read a book. Uh, it was about farming. And one of the things that this author was saying was how saying grace is uh, a countercultural narrative. Where we are so used to, we go to superstore, we buy what we need, we have it, it is ours, we eat our food. Instead, when we are saying grace and when we are kind of being cognitive of what we are doing, we are acknowledging that the food on our table is there for reasons far beyond us. That there is someone who has devoted their time and their life to the growth of this food. Whether it is in raising livestock or it is, it is growing uh, crops on their farm. And that through that whole process and the soil that needs to be maintained and the weather that is necessary to produce it and then the production process of being able to package it and get it into a way where it will be at the grocery store for us to be able to purchase through the jobs that we have and the money that we are uh, given in those jobs to be able to put this food on our table to eat. There are things far beyond us at work for us to be able to receive and to eat what we have. And in saying grace, we are thanking God for the food. We are blessing it as a gift from Him and acknowledging this is beyond me just getting what is mine. It is a gift. So that I see what is uh, given to me with thankfulness rather than with entitlement. Lastly, Paul asks them to pray for their mission. He says he pr to pray for open doors and for the gospel to pre be preached clearly. I think Paul is a little bit, um, I think he's smirking as he's praying for, asking them to pray for open doors so that his mission can continue because he's in prison right now. So I think this is a little like praying for open doors is like, pray that I get out of here so that we can continue the work that we're doing. That he is 
longing for the mission that God has called them to, to go forward for the gospel to be proclaimed. Now, Paul is not the kind of guy who sees his time in prison as something that's wasted. In fact, this letter, Philemon, Philippians, and Ephesians are all written from prison. So Paul isn't just like taking a vacation in his time, you know, in the slammer. He is seeing this as a time that God is using. But he wants the word of God to go forward. And he longs for the opportunity to continue to spread it. He's also asking that the gospel would be proclaimed clearly. And what I appreciate about this with Paul is we think of him as like he's St. Paul the Apostle. He wrote the, the letters that are in the New Testament. No doubt every articulation of the good news that he does is just this perfect oration. But Paul admits in some of his other letters, like, people were disappointed when I preached. Like, I wasn't fancy with my words. I'm not this like phenomenal rhetorician where like the words that I come out with are poetic and people are just lining up to hear the way that I preach. But he wants the message to come out. He wants people to understand it clearly. And here's what I appreciate about this is he's longing for them to pray this for him because he knows he's going to do his part, but ultimately God's going to have to be at work if the gospel is received then naturally our hearts are, are not receptive to the good news of the gospel. That when someone confronts us with the reality that our sin alienates us from God, but the God of the universe loves us enough to take the step towards us, that the death of the Son of God on the cross and his resurrection is what's necessary for us to be reconciled with our creator, and he is going to reconcile all things to himself, and that our lives are meant to be lived in line with him in following Jesus, like, we're not naturally receptive to that. But it takes the tilling up of the soil in our hearts for the seed of the gospel to take root. And I think that's part of what Paul is praying to happen. And so a a good question for us as a church is, how are we praying for the mission that God has called us to? Are we praying that the gospel that is proclaimed would would take root in people's hearts? Are we praying that that as we go about and live our lives as followers of Jesus, that we would be able to talk about Jesus in a way that is clear and that can be received by the power of the Spirit in people's lives? How are we praying together for this as a church? This is something that I've been convicted about recently and and I think is an area that we need to grow in as a church. And so something that we are going to be doing this summer together is having nights of prayer and worship together. Now, ladies, you guys have been leading the way with this. Like you guys have been doing this for months where you guys have been getting together and worshiping and praying together And I think that has been kind of the furnace of the ministry of our church is women coming together for prayer. But I think, guys, we're kind of missing out on that. And that the whole church is invited to be praying together for the work that God has called us to in the time and place that we're in. And so we are switching our women's prayer and worship nights over the summer to just prayer and worship nights. 
where we are going to be getting together a Wednesday night through June, July, and August to be able to come and to pray and to seek God and to pray for the time and the place and the people that God has called us to as a church family. So keep your eye open as those come about. The next thing that Paul is talking about in his very long goodbye He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. I think this is incredibly relevant for us today. That in evangelism, which is just a big word that means sharing Jesus with others, the how that we go about it is often as important as what we say. Because there there is a whole lot of negative church PR out there right now. The way that Christianity, that the gospel is perceived in our culture and time is often and sometimes very rightly seen negatively. And so we now, just as the Colossians were in the first century, are called to be wise in how we act towards those who are not followers of Jesus, to use wisdom. We're often unaware of the water that we swim in because we're so used to talking about Jesus with other Christians. We're so used to how we do church or how we talk about the gospel or, or even the, the lines that we draw around the, the borders of our faith that we, we are unaware of how we come across or how we sound to those who, who aren't part of Christianity. So we're called to be wise. Here, here's a little piece of wisdom. I think using the word outsider is actually probably unwise even though that is what Paul uses here to talk about insiders and outsiders when we're talking to people who are not followers of Jesus, maybe we should use better language than that. That we should be wise in how we speak and act towards outsiders. Do we understand how our community views Christians? How our community sees the 14 and a half churches in, uh, sorry, 15 churches in our community that, that shows a a level of division and splitting and discord among Christians that is not helpful to our witness. They see us as divided people who don't get along with each other even though we're supposed to worship the same God. How does that inform how we act and speak when we're talking with those who don't know Jesus? To use wisdom to understand the water we swim in and understand how those around us view Christianity. But Paul also says, make the most of every opportunity. God is going to provide moments where our relationship with our neighbor deepens or where a coworker begins to trust us, where we all of a sudden have these relationships where it becomes an easy space for our love of Jesus to overflow and spill out and for us to be able to communicate Jesus with others. Listen, sometimes we have 
grown up with a way of of thinking about evangelism or sharing our faith that is like, I need this specific pre-packaged presentation of the gospel that if I don't get the whole four spiritual laws out of me and the tract passed out to the person, then I'm not doing it right. And I think that might be a predominantly ineffective way of sharing Jesus these days with people. That in fact, there is something profound to us understanding who Jesus is and loving him and that just being such a natural part of our lives that it leaks out in our words, that it's obvious in our actions, that we can't help but just like, we're mentioning how, hey, we were getting together for worship on Tuesday night and I had this really profound experience. And and to be able to talk about it. Like, we don't have to be forcing the point of decision every moment we're talking with someone. God is going to give us opportunities where Jesus is just a natural part of what flows out of our life and our mouth instead of some awkward bait and switch moment where every conversation has to, has to be the conversion point. We can talk about Jesus in a way that is so natural and normal when he is that significant part of our life. Paul says, let your conversations always be full of grace. This is important. This is important because we are, we are shifting in our time and place in North America where we have often assumed a Christianized culture around us. Where for those of us who have grown up in the church in decades past, we saw probably less difference between maybe the the values, morals, and ethics of what Christianity upheld and in the broader culture around us. And there are changes now in, in, in the, the ethical values and morals of society. Christianity and Christians should not assume that people who are not followers of Jesus have the same morals or values or ethics as Christians do. And so to come to someone and our immediate response to them is pointing out here's all the ways that you're sinning here's all the things that you're doing wrong is to approach someone from a a tone of judgment that is not well received where we should not expect someone who's not a christian to share the moral and ethical values of jesus like but the way that we often approach conversations about morality, about social issues, is to expect that people need to be on the same page as Christians about these issues. Listen, if someone doesn't know Jesus, if he has not come into their life and affected their heart and desire, like, I don't expect people to be on the same page with Christian values and morals and way of viewing life if Jesus is not a part of their life. And so, in our conversations, interactions with people who don't know Jesus, we take a posture of graciousness and not judgmentalism. Our first step is not to point out, here is all your sin. Our first step is one of graciousness and understanding as to not stifle the opportunity for further and ongoing conversations about Jesus. 
Listen, we introduce someone to Jesus and they come to know Him. He's going to do all kinds of sorting out of things in their life. He's going to be affecting their hearts in all kinds of ways. And yes, there are times for conversations about where lines are drawn and those kinds of things, but we never lead with that. Jesus is the one who is going to change our hearts, change our values, open us up. When we know Jesus and love him, we will start to begin loving the things that he loves. And so we approach others full of grace. He says, let your conversations be seasoned with salt. Now, for us to be salty means like, it's, it's a negative thing. It's a, um, what's a word I can say in church? It's a, um, it is, it is to have a frustrated and negative disposition towards someone in how you speak is to be salty. That's not what Paul means when he's talking about our conversations be seasoned with salt. What he means is don't be boring. It's the difference between mashed potatoes with nothing on them and mashed potatoes with seasoning. Don't be plain mashed potatoes. We worship the God of the universe who created all things, who is renewing all things, who is intricate and involved and at work in your life and changing you. And don't be plain mashed potatoes in how you talk to people about it. This is the creator and sustainer of the universe who is doing things in your life. And if we turn our conversations about Jesus into this like dry theology lecture or just becomes this like bland, boring Christianity that we're actually embarrassed to talk about, I don't think those are conversations that are seasoned with salt. Where are you excited about seeing Jesus at work? And how does that excitement get communicated to others when you talk about him? May our conversations be seasoned with salt. Lastly, he says um, that you may know how to answer everyone. What he's saying here is, first of all, that we should probably know some basic answers to some of the objections and criticisms that people have of Christianity. That it is good to be, you know, have some kind of understanding of when they say like, well, you know, Christians are Christians believe all these things, but I get really frustrated with Christians because often they don't act the way that they say they believe. Valid criticism. And the, the, the criticism that Christians are hypocrites. And so to be able to understand the gospel enough to be able to respond and say, you know what, you're right. I'm someone who is imperfect, where I sin and I don't live up to what I believe. But the hope of Christianity is not in me and my behavior and how good I am, but in a Savior who died to rescue me from myself. And that's why I need Jesus. And that is why I I believe that His death on the cross forgives me from my sins. And I believe that He is gradually and progressively making me new. But I'm not perfect, but Jesus is. Like to be able to respond to those kinds of criticisms in a way that might help people receive the answer that they need to hear. 
But also, the way that this is worded in Greek gives this impression of Paul saying, to know the kind of answer that people need to hear. Because some people need to hear that this is the logical, reasoned answer to your question. This is the, uh, the term apologetics, means like the official kind of logical, defending the faith, philosophical answers. And some people need those. Some people have hurdles that they're trying to get over intellectually that we need to respond to in that way. But sometimes the answer people need is to be heard and taken seriously and to recognize and not dismiss their objections and struggles with Christianity. And to be able to say, Do you know what, I, I, I acknowledge that and I, I understand why you would feel that way. And that more than just giving a quick, clean-cut answer, we might need to show the compassion of Jesus by taking people seriously in their doubts. To give the kind of answer that people need to hear. We should be wise in how we act and how we speak with people who are not part of the faith. Then Paul gets to the really long goodbye part. And um, this is what he says. Starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He was delivering this letter. He's coming with Onesimus our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. A fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instruction about him, and if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, not Jesus of Nazareth, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you, and that those at Laodicea and Hierapolis, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, that's the guy who wrote the book of Acts, by the way, and Demas sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that in turn read, uh, read the letter uh, from Laodicea. So he's saying there was a letter I wrote to Laodicea. You guys should read that too. We don't have that in the Bible. Hmm. Tell uh, Archippus, See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write these greetings in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, there's all kinds of stuff in here, and we're not going to go through it verse by verse like we did with the other section, but there's a whole lot of names. And what's interesting as you look at these names is they represent the interesting eclectic mix that the church in Colossae was. That there are people who were financially well off enough to be traveling around. 
there were those who were slaves. There was a doctor. There's someone who owns a large estate that a church meets in. And and I think this just shows this cross-section, men and women, those of high social class and those of lower, that the church was a mix. That it was people from all walks of life. But we're going to focus on three people specifically in this because this shows us the beauty and the complexity of the community that is the church. First of all, Onesimus. Onesimus, Paul says in this part, he is coming, uh, he's coming, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, and they will tell you everything that is happening here. Onesimus, if you remember from last week, was a runaway slave. He belonged to a man named Philemon, who was a member of the church in Colossae. He ran away. He probably stole something to kind of fund his travels. He meets up with Paul, becomes a follower of Jesus, does a bunch of ministry with Paul, and then Paul sends him back. And as he sends him back to Philemon, he writes the letter that we have in the New Testament of Philemon. That is this explanation of Philemon, look, this is what happened. I'm sending Onesimus back to you, and I'm trusting you're going to do the right thing that you no longer see him as a slave, but as a brother. And I love how the language, even in this letter, is to say, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. This man who was, last these people saw, a slave, is coming back as a brother, as an equal. And Paul's saying, he shouldn't be a slave anymore. Paul's response to slavery in the rubber meets the road case-by-case situation of it is that Onesimus should go free. And so we see in this situation of Onesimus and Philemon that Paul is advocating on behalf of this man who probably wouldn't have a voice for himself. And he is sorting through a potentially contentious situation in the Colossian church. There's all kinds of opportunity for this to go wrong. The next person is John Mark. He's just called Mark in this uh, passage, but he, we see, is a cousin of Barnabas. Now, we read here in, in this passage, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greeting, as does John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and in brackets, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. John Mark and Paul have a complex relationship. Where we read in the book of Acts, as they were traveling, Paul and Barnabas were missionary partners. And they went around the Roman Empire proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. And Barnabas at one point said, hey, let's bring John Mark with us. My cousin, he's going to come and be a helper. And at one point, John Mark splits off, parts ways with them. And so later on, when they're going to go do their next trip, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with them. And Paul says, no, he abandoned us. He, he left us high and dry. And so I am not going to go on this journey if John Mark is coming. Paul seems a little petty here, if we're honest and reading it at face value. We don't know the complexity of the situation. But let me read to you from Acts 15. It says, Barnabas wanted to take John, who was called Mark, 
with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So instead of being missionary partners, Paul and Barnabas parted ways over John Mark. But what we see here in this letter, written later after the events that happened in Acts, is Paul seems to have reconciled with Mark. He, he seems to have some kind of at least positive relationship. And, and we read kind of in brackets here that I wrote to you guys about this guy and if he shows up, you should welcome him. And I wonder if maybe Paul at some point had said some things about this guy that he needed to make up for. Maybe if he had he'd smeared his reputation in some ways so that the church in Colossae was now kind of skeptical about this guy, John Mark. But now Paul in his long goodbye is saying, listen, Mark sends greetings. I've written to you about him privately. If he comes by, welcome him. What this shows me is that there was some kind of reconciliation that took place. Where Paul, when he was younger, had this sharp disagreement, this fallout of relationship with John Mark, but now he is commending him to the church in Colossae. Are we willing as church community to reconcile past disagreements and to actually speak on behalf of those that we once had issues with? Are we willing to be those who see the past that we have with someone and say, okay, we have both grown since then. We have received the grace of God. And so we will demonstrate grace and reconciliation and forgiveness. Because I don't want to be a church community that has 30-year-old grudges that are dividing our congregation. Will we be those that seek reconciliation? Lastly, he mentions Demas. What's interesting about this is we go on to learn at the end of Paul's career that Demas is someone who abandoned him. Here they're in good relationship, but later on, Paul, in his one of his last letters of 2 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, he says, do your best to come quickly for Demas because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul, at the end of his life, experienced abandonment from Demas. And so what we see here is a relationship that was whole that later on we find out falls apart. And I think it's important for us to be honest about the fact that though we have good relationship, though we want to live in community with one another, there is conflict that arises. There are things that happen. As followers of Jesus, are we going to be those that seek unity that seek to advocate on behalf of one another, that seek reconciliation. And even when there are situations where there is potentially betrayal or relational fallout, will we respond to it in the way of Jesus? The early church was complex. We are complex. But the question that I have is what connotations would I want associated with my name if Paul was to write a church 
to Cornerstone and Montague. And he says, say hi to Tyler. And in brackets, there's something there. What connotations would I want associated with my name? Remember when we were doing the letters of John and he was talking about like the Demetrius who loves to be first? Like he's not afraid to pull punches. What connotations would I want associated with my name if Paul was writing this letter to us? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And in Christ we have been redeemed and restored and reconciled and forgiven. So my prayer is that that gospel would take root in our relationships with one another too. That, that in this long goodbye when there, where there's names mentioned and relationship connections that are brought up almost in a very islander kind of way, that we might be those where those relationships are affected by the reconciliation, the forgiveness, and the love of Jesus. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. And the word communion means to be together. And that is part of one of the many facets of this meal. That as we eat and drink, we are doing this together. As the community of those who have been reconciled through Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to sing a song together. And during this song, I'm going to invite you to come forward to the table. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are invited to come and to take the bread and to take the cup. And I'll I'll invite you to take it and to go back to your seat and we'll eat it all together at the same time. But as you come forward and as we sing the words of this song, would it be a time for us to reflect of in my relationship to those who are not in the church? Am I acting like Christ? And in my relationship with those in the church, am I acting like Christ? So I'm going to invite Brenda and Wendy, if you guys would come forward. And as you are prepared during this next song, I would invite you to come forward to take the bread, take the juice, and to return to your seat, to reflect on the words and reflect on the word from Colossians this morning.